Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be looking at verses 10 through 13 on what Peter says about the coming day of the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3. And I'll begin reading in verse 10. It's my privilege to read for you the inspired Word of God, so please listen in faith and also with reverence for God's Word. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, don't you wish you knew what the future held for you? I think investors would love to know what the future is, uh, particularly those who invest in the stock market. They could uh, buy low and sell high, or they can sell before things tank and go down into the gutter. However, when it comes to investing in the stock market, uh, it's illegal to use insider information to take advantage of the market. That is, if you work, for example, for a company and uh, you know what the public does not know, that the next earnings report of your company is going to be horrible and it's going to drive the stock way down. And so based on that knowledge that nobody else has, you sell all your shares while they're still high and you profit a big profit. Well, that's illegal. It's illegal to, to share, to sell your shares based upon that kind of insider information. Well, it's interesting that the Scriptures give God's people some insider information about the future. But it's not designed to make us rich physically or materially, but the insider information is designed to make us rich spiritually. This insider information that Scripture gives us is not to tell us when the Lord will return. We really don't know but how we should live in light of the Lord's certain return in the future. And I really think that's where Peter is taking us in this passage this morning. He wants us to understand the certainty of future events, but he's very interested in how that should impact the way we live today. That's the insider information he wants to give to us about the coming day of the Lord. So we begin in verse 10, and Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So let's begin by examining the day of the Lord. What does that refer to? Well, in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is found a number of times and oftentimes it refers to God's decisive intervention into history to bring judgment to His enemies and salvation to His people. One example of that for uh, in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, speaks of the Lord's giving Isaiah this prophecy concerning Babylon. And in verse 6, He says, Wail, Babylon, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And then down in verse 17, he identifies the day of the Lord coming when the Medes are going to be stirred up against Babylon and destroy Babylon. So the day of the Lord has many historical reference points throughout the Old Testament. But even all of these ultimately point to the final day of the Lord that Peter has in mind here in Second Peter uh, chapter 3. So in... Peter's letter here in chapter 3, you'll notice that he has reference to the day of the Lord, verse 10, which is synonymous with the day of God, verse 12, and also the day of eternity in verse 18. And all of this is referencing the second coming of Jesus Christ as I understand this uh, language. The day of the Lord, the Lord here is Jesus Christ. And in other places in the New Testament, Paul, for example, on several occasions will speak of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the day of the Lord is the day of Christ. And in the context of 2 Peter 3, it's referencing the second coming. So the second coming is when the day of the Lord will come. Christ will come. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes and returns in glory. Now, the day of God reference in verse 12 is interesting. Peter started his second letter in chapter 1, verse 1 by calling Jesus God. So the day of the Lord is the same as the day of God because Jesus Christ is God and He will usher in the day of eternity. So all these references, uh, these phrases refer to basically the same event, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Then notice back in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. He's adamant. He's dogmatic. The day of the Lord will come. And he's very assertive because what were the false teachers denying? They were denying the second coming. Back up in verse 4, they were denying it. So Peter again, having refuted their theology, states very uh, dramatically and emphatically that the day of the Lord will come. Now notice he says it will come like a thief. And this is a familiar language. The Lord Jesus used this kind of language in Matthew 24. But Peter also was aware of Paul's letters. Later on in chapter 3, he's going to reference uh, Paul's letters and many of the other things that Paul wrote, people distort. So Peter knew Paul's letters. And I think he probably has one of Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 in mind. 
And there the Apostle Paul wrote, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And I think Peter is probably barring that expression from the Apostle Paul. Now what does it mean for the day of the Lord to come like a thief in the night? Well, it doesn't tell us when it's going to occur. We don't know when it's going to happen. Nobody really knows. But the the use of the analogy or the figure of speech that it's going to come like a thief in the night speaks as to the manner of His coming. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected like a thief who breaks into your house at night. There's a suddenness. There's an unexpectedness. It catches people off guard. It's surprising. They're not ready for it. It's an irreparable loss for those who are unprepared. And Paul goes on to say that only unbelievers will be caught off guard. Only for unbelievers, when Jesus Christ comes back, that will be like a thief in the night because they're not expecting it. They're not looking for it. But it won't be that way for believers because we're children of day. We're not children of night. We're watching. We're waiting. We don't know when He's going to come back. But when He does come, we've been expecting Him to come. So it's a different reaction. But He will come just like a thief in the night. Now, what will happen when Christ comes like a thief in the night? In verse 10. Well, Peter says three things will happen in verse 10. When the day of the Lord comes, when Jesus Christ comes again, He'll come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. That's number one. Number two, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And number three, the earth and its works will be burned up. So notice the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now what kind of a roar is You think the roar of a lion? No, this is probably the roar that comes from a, a global cosmic fire. Like if you've ever been or heard of a great forest fire, there's almost a roaring that comes. And I say that because Peter and other places have likened this great destruction that will occur when Jesus Christ comes back with fire. It will come with fire. Uh, If you look back at verse 7 of this chapter, for example, Peter says, but by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. And then if you drop down to verse 12 again, Similar things. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So all of that speaks to this great fire event which the day of the Lord will bring upon the heavens. So the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now exactly how all that happens, I I don't know. But uh, that's what Peter says. That's what the Scriptures say. The second thing is that the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. So the elements refer to the building blocks of which everything is made. Now obviously when Peter's writing this, I don't know for sure what he understood the elements to be, those basic building blocks, but the Holy Spirit has guided Peter 
to express it in this language which actually is consistent with our modern scientific understanding of the atomic structure of atoms. Just the the use of atoms. So that when Christ comes back, when the day of the Lord come, the very building blocks of material things, the very elements, the very atomic structure of things will be destroyed with intense heat. So it's very consistent with what we now understand to be the most basic building blocks of physical things being atoms. And then thirdly, he says, the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, some of your translations translate the end of verse 10 a bit differently. And that's because there's a textual difficulty with the phrase burned up. The word that's found here is not literally burned up. It's more like something will be found. That the earth and its works will be found or it will be manifested or it will be revealed as, as I think the better Greek. So the New American Standard, the King James uses burned up. Uh, that really doesn't come from the Greek word because the, uh, the, the textual uh, information doesn't support burned up. So the ESV and the NIV are probably closer when it says the earth and its works will be exposed or be laid bare. And I think uh, the works here are not the works of the earth, but it's the works of men. So the third thing that's going to happen here when the day of the Lord comes like a thief is that the earth and the works of men will be exposed. It will be manifested when God judges them is the idea. I think that's the best way to interpret it. For example, if you look back at verse 7 again, by His Word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So when the universe is destroyed, ungodly men will be destroyed at the same time. So at the end of verse 10, I think Peter, who has a habit of re-emphasizing these truths, is saying that same thing. He's saying the earth and its works, the works of men, will be exposed. It will be rendered under the the judgment of God. The earth, of course, will be destroyed with fire and the works of men will also be judged. The works of ungodly men will be judged as we saw back in verse 7. So this is a difficult ending to the verse, but that's, uh, that's probably the best way that I can understand it at this point. So from verse 10, now notice where Peter goes with this future insider information about what's going to happen to the heavens and the earth. He says in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So what Peter is saying, based upon what you now know the future holds, The day of the Lord is going to come. Christ will come back. The heavens and the earth will be destroyed with fire. Ungodly men will be judged by God at that time. And how should that insider information affect you 
today. That's his point. What sort of people ought you to be in holiness and godliness in light of the fact that all these things are going to be destroyed in this way? So Peter is primarily giving this insight into the future, this insider information, if you will, to promote sanctification now in the hearts and lives of God's people. This is really a theme that you'll find whenever the Bible talks about eschatology and it lays out future events. It's not primarily to get us all curious and investigating on trying to nail down the timing of Christ's return. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is on now that you know what's going to happen in the future, how should that impact you today? That's the key. So that eschatology is not so much about figuring out when Christ will return, we don't know, but how we should live in light of it. And that's exactly where Peter's going with this information. What sort of people ought you to be? The ought implies a moral obligation, a moral duty of believers to live this way in light of what we know the future holds. It should impact my life today and your life as well. Now, what's the connection? So, look at verse 11 again. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, all what things? Well, the heavens and the earth, primarily. is what he's been immediately talking about. Since the heavens and the earth are going to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So what's the connection? How should the future destruction of things influence me today? Well, it should, it should remind me, remind all of us, that all the material things of this universe will one day be destroyed. They're like a house of cards, soaked in gasoline, lit on fire in that day, and it will all be consumed and destroyed. Every bit of it, every atom, I think, will be impacted. That means all of your property is going to be destroyed. Your houses, your buildings, your gold, your retirement account, oil wells, farmlands, food, clothing, furniture, cars, both Chevys and Royal Royces. It's all going to be destroyed. So what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And I think what Peter is striving at is that the fact that all of these things are going to be destroyed, why in the world do you make idols of them? Why do you love them so much? Why is your heart so attached to all of this stuff when it's going to be destroyed? It will not last forever. The holy conduct that he mentions here, holiness really involves two kinds of separation. Holiness involves being separate from sin, but also separate unto God. 
So holy conduct is living your life striving to be separated from sin, but separated unto the service of God. That's holy conduct. We're to strive to live within the boundaries of God's Word. It's like a, a track race. And they're running the, the 400 meters or whatever it may be. And all the runners have to stay in their lane. They have to run within the lane. If they transgress the lane, then they get disqualified. And the holy life is a life that desires to run the race within the lane set forth by the Word of God. That's a holy life. Godliness just speaks to devotion to God, personal piety, being consecrated, seeking to do what is pleasing to God, contrary to what the false teachers were doing, living a life full of licentiousness and sensuality. But Peter says, knowing that all of the things in this earth, all the things even in the heavens are going to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? And I think the connection is, the application from this would be several things. Number one, in light of knowing that all these things are going to be destroyed, we need to keep a, a loose grip on the things of this world. I mean, how wise is it to be so committed to materialism, owning this and, and collecting up that, and whatever, knowing that it's all going to be destroyed. You cannot keep it. You cannot hang on to it beyond the few years that we're allotted in this world. So keep a loose grip on the, even the blessings that God has given to us. Don't make them an idol. Such idols will be destroyed. Now, Scripture is not teaching the first or the second century heresy of Gnosticism where the material world is evil and to be godly, you have to remove yourself from the world and go out and live as a hermit off in some desert cave. No, no. the Bible tells us we should enjoy the good gifts of God and the blessings of God and rejoice in them. Just don't make them an idol because you're not going to be able to keep them. It's all going to be destroyed. So don't love them. Don't put them in, in, in front of your relationship with God. I think that's part of the application. Since all these things are going to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because you realize that there's something more valuable than the stuff of this world. It's the Lord Himself. So, Peter is not condemning money. He's not, Paul says, remember that it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. It's not money in and of itself, but it's how we use our money is impacted by the wisdom and the exhortation of verse 11. The point is, I think, what he's saying, since it's going to be destroyed, don't grip it too tightly because you will lose it all in the end. There's an interesting legend that I've read about how they trap monkeys in like South America or in Africa. And they'll get a jug with a, with a narrow neck on it and they'll tie a rope 
to the neck of the jug and secure it to a stake in the ground or to a small tree. And then they'll put uh, some nuts or some small fruit that the monkeys love to eat. And so the monkey will smell the fruit. He'll go over to the jug and, and the neck of the, of the jug is just big enough for the monkey to stick his, his hand and his forearm down into it. But when he grabs the fruit or the nuts, he can't pull it out. And he won't let go. And so he's holding on to the fruit and now his fist is too big, he can't pull it out. And the hunters can just walk up and throw a net over him and capture him. And what Peter is saying is don't grip the stuff that you have in this life. You can't keep it. You'll lose it when you die anyway. When Christ comes back, it's all going to be destroyed. So don't make it an idol. Don't make it that important in your life. Making idols of the things of this world is not only foolish, it's also deadly. Like the man who boarded the ship carrying all of his savings in a bag of gold coins But the ship started to sink and he refused to leave his gold behind so he tied the bag around his waist and jumped overboard to try to make it to shore. And of course, he sank and drowned because he loved his gold more than anything else. So when Peter is exhorting us that in light of the coming destruction, we ought to be holy and godly. It's because we are worshiping God and putting Him first, not the treasures that we accumulate here. Making idols of this world is just something that uh, is inappropriate. It's what the false teachers were doing. And Peter says, I've given you insider information to the future. Now let it impact your life. Another application of this is not only that we need to keep a a loose grip on the things of this world and the blessings that we have and not make them into idols, but we should also be wise and invest in eternity, not just invest in the here and now. This is what the Lord taught His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Very challenging He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy or where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So what the Lord is saying in His his teaching is, Don't store up treasures on earth because you can lose those. And you can lose those in this life. Moth, rust, thieves, bad economy. You can lose all the treasures on earth. So the wise man and the wise woman has an eye to storing up treasures in heaven that you will not lose. That's the wisdom of the Lord Jesus. Because where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. 
So how do we store up treasures in heaven? Because if all the earthly stuff that we delight in and enjoy is going to be destroyed, not that we can't delight in them and enjoy them, we certainly can, but we don't want to give them more value or importance in our life than they, than they deserve. But we should have an eye to storing up treasures in heaven. How do we do that? How do we store up treasures in heaven? Well, Jesus had something to say about that as well. In Luke chapter 12, verse 33, He told His disciples to sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Now in this case, he doesn't say sell all your possessions. He did that to the rich young ruler because his possessions were his God and Jesus is making a point to show him that. But nevertheless, the Lord tells his disciples to sell their possessions and give to charity. So, so giving to charity is one way to store up treasures in heaven. Now, we're not talking about salvation here. We're talking about the rewards of the righteous, those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ, which alone can save us. But giving to charity is one way to store up treasures in heaven. However, some people, I think, wrestle with this. I think we can all wrestle with this at times. Does that mean I, I do need to sell all my possessions and give everything away to the poor? Certainly Jesus challenged some to do that. But Paul, on the other hand, in 1 Timothy 6, said this to those in the church who were rich. He said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them, that is, Timothy, instruct the rich in the church to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So while Paul tells Timothy to to do is don't tell all the rich people, sell everything you have and give it all to charity, If the Spirit of God leads someone to do that, they they certainly can and will will be blessed to do that. But he says, no, tell the rich people to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and you can store up treasures in heaven that way. So it's not only just giving to the needy, being generous and ready to share, but doing good and being rich in good, good works. So those who are fluent, those who are rich, should not make their money, their riches, an idol because they can't take it with them when they die. And when Christ comes back, all of their wealth is going to be destroyed anyway. But to store up treasures in heaven by doing good, good works, being generous and ready to share. So these are some of the ways that the Scriptures tell us we can store up heaven's treasure in heaven. So that the Bible does not condemn preparing for the future. Proverbs tells us to go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. And she gathers her food together in the harvest for the, for the winter months. But we are not to make money our God. We're not to make material things our idols. 
And in effect, the character of our heart is oftentimes revealed by how we spend our money and what we view as our treasures now in this life. What Jesus was saying basically is that we store up treasures in heaven by giving away treasures on earth. But the more important key than that is to make Jesus Christ our treasure. He's our greatest treasure. And if Christ is our greatest treasure, that will guide how we use and spend our money. Because if someone looked at your checkbook, they're going to get an idea as to what your heart is like. Because where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. People that spend their money only on themselves and they're just concerned about accumulating stuff, they never give to charity, they never try to advance the kingdom of God, they never invest in eternal things, then they're going to end up being the poorer for it. And I think what Peter is reminding us is that, look, all this stuff that we're so drawn to that we just, we got to have now, all the luxuries, all the comforts, nothing wrong with luxuries and comforts, but we pursue them to such a degree that they become first place in our life. All that stuff's going to be destroyed. And because it's going to be destroyed, that should reorient the focus of our heart to pursue what is eternal. To pursue what will last forever and invest in that. That's the mark of a godly conduct and holiness of life. Because now Christ is our treasure. So I invest my money to a degree in Christ and the kingdom and in the spread of the gospel and helping the poor. These are the things which should be growing in our hearts in light of the insider information about the future. I don't know if you're convicted or not, but I am. So Peter says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Because all that stuff that you are so pursuing with all of your energy now it's going to be destroyed. So don't make it a God. Put your priorities right. Put Christ first. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And then Peter adds in verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. So again, he's just re-emphasizing this coming judgment, but he says we're to be looking for it and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's the day of the Lord. That's the second coming when the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. By looking for it, Peter uses that expression looking for three times in verse 12 and 13 and 14. Three times he uses that. We're to be looking for it and then hastening it. And the hastening means and implies that there's stuff we can be doing that will make it come sooner. Now this is not outside of the sovereignty of God, but we know that God's sovereignty uses the means of bringing about His will. And that's 
probably what Peter has in mind here. We're not only to be looking for the coming of the day of God, but hastening it. Pushing it along so it comes here sooner. How do we do that? Well, we do it by praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. We're praying. Lord, Thy kingdom come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're to be praying. We're to be watching. We're to be looking for that. You can also do it by living godly. As He says here, a holy conduct and godliness will help to hasten the coming of the day of God. By working to advance His kingdom through evangelism and missions. And all of this, again, is under the sovereignty of God. It's all preordained. God has already determined the timing. But Peter is encouraging us to holy conduct and godliness, seeking for the Lord to come soon. Be watching for it, looking for it, with great eager expectation, wanting it to come. That's the attitude we should have. And again, at the end of verse 12, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. So he says you need to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God when the universe is going to be destroyed. But that's not so much what we're looking for and wanting to come. It's not just the the destruction of the universe. It's what happens next. That's the real draw of God's people. And what happens next is found in verse 13. But according to His promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is what we're really after. We're looking for, we're hastening it, not just because we we want the universe to be destroyed, but God will remake it into a new heavens and a new earth. So the day of the Lord will not only initiate world destruction, but it will bring about world regeneration with that new heavens and new earth. So we're not just merely waiting for the destruction We're looking forward to that glorified universe in which we will dwell with the Lord forever. So the salvation that Jesus accomplished on the cross was not just to save our souls and our bodies for heaven forever, but His redemption also provided the grace that will regenerate the universe. A new heavens and a new earth. Jesus said spoke of the coming of the regeneration when the cosmos will also enter into a phase of glory with the children of God. This is what we really are looking forward to. And that also is a motivation for us to live godly lives today. This promise of a new heavens and a new earth comes from Isaiah 65. Verse 17, Isaiah prophesies, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, Isaiah 66, which I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. So Isaiah prophesied that when this day of the Lord comes, God will create a new heavens and a new earth. 
when we come to the last two chapters of Revelation, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. So he prophesies again of the coming of the new heaven and the new earth after this present world is destroyed by fire and destroyed by God. So in verse 13, Peter has talked about this new heavens and new earth. There's two words for new in Greek. One is new in time. The other is new in quality. And it's the new in quality word that's used here in the new heavens and the new earth. It's new in time also, but he's emphasizing the newness, the quality. It's different. It's where where righteousness dwells. Where in this present heavens and earth is where unrighteousness dwells. But in the coming new heavens and new earth, that's where righteousness will permeate everything. It will characterize this coming eternal world It's unlike our present world, which is under the curse of sin. The new world will be sinless. And all will be in perfect obedience to God's will. So the present heavens and earth now that we're living in is groaning under the burden and the curse of of Adam's sin. And it's awaiting, as Paul personifies the heavens and the earth, It's groaning now, but it's waiting for the coming of Christ when the children of God get glorified because then the cosmos will be glorified in that day as well. This is the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. He says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So what Paul has said in this passage is that the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. When you and I are revealed in glory, when Christ comes back and you have the the resurrection of the dead in Christ and then the living will be transformed and we we are revealed as the sons of God, that's when the universe itself will be born again as well. And the universe is waiting for that day. Now it's groaning. Now it's suffering. But it's looking forward to be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So when we enter into the freedom of the glory of being God's children, when Christ comes back and we're glorified, then creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And it will be glorified and we'll live in a glorified earth on a glorified, in a glorified new Jerusalem forever and ever. That's the way Peter sees it. So when Christ comes back, what we're to be watching for and anticipating and looking for 
is that when Christ comes back, He's going to be like a, a divine goldsmith that takes all of the ore of the universe and sets it on fire, if you will, and melts it all down and removes all of the sin and all the dross and all the unrighteousness and all the curse of the law. And He'll, he'll separate out all of the sin and remove it. And then He'll take what's left and fashion it into a new glorified heavens and a new glorified earth. He'll burn away the dross and remake it into a perfect world. And Peter says that's where righteousness dwells. It's in the new heavens and the new earth. God's righteousness will so fill the universe of the new heavens and the new earth with His glory and His beauty that it will be nothing but a righteous world in that day. Every believer will be perfectly righteous not only just with imputed righteousness of Christ, but we will be outwardly righteous with righteous thoughts and a righteous heart and a righteous words and righteous actions. Nothing but righteousness. There will be perfect righteousness, perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect joy, perfect worship of God in a perfect world. That's where righteousness dwells. And Peter says that's our motivation for holy living and godliness. Because nothing in this world will last. None of your treasures on earth will endure. None of your idols will stand the test of time. When Christ comes back, everything will be destroyed. The way John says it, I love it, in John, 1 John 2.17, he says the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So that's the insider information that Peter has given to the saints. He's described the future destruction of the world, the creation of a new heavens and new earth to help them to loosen their grip on the things of this world and to invest themselves more in eternity than in the passing pleasures of our day. I'm reminded of Corey Ten Boom. Many of y'all have probably read her book, The Hiding Place. But uh, she and her family, mainly her father and her sister, were caught hiding Jews in World War II. They were taken to prison, then to a concentration camp where Corey and her sister were subject to shameful, naked examinations, beatings, floggings, constant battles with lice and fleas, sickness, overflowing toilets, stench, starvation, hard labor, freezing temperatures at night with threadbare blankets. And in the heart of that context, as they lived out their lives, the Lord filled them, as it seems to me, with a supernatural love for their enemies and love for people 
and a desire to share the gospel with others. They were somehow miraculously able to smuggle in a Bible with them when they were in the concentration camp. And these women would gather around and they would open up the Word of God. And she would say, in the midst of the cold and the freezing, the light and the warmth of Scripture would, would draw them together, would warm their souls, though their bodies were bone were cold to the bone, and the light would dispense the darkness of just the evil around them. And in all of that, she said that the Lord taught her an invaluable lesson, and that is to hold everything in your hands lightly. Otherwise, it hurts when God pries your fingers off of it. And what Peter is saying to us is don't grip the things of this world too much because you cannot keep it. And it will hurt you. You will suffer when God in His providence comes and breaks those fingers from those blessings that you have loved, you have have made them idols. Peter said, don't do that. Like Corey Tim Boone, hold everything lightly in your hands. Hold it with an open hand. Don't make it your God. Don't make it your idol. Don't make it your treasure. Make Christ your treasure. And He's coming again. Therefore, live for Him today. That's what Peter wants us to do. And may God give us the grace to do that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we we thank You, Lord, for just the grace, the revelation, the prophecies that You gave to Peter to understand and to be able to share with us this insider information about the future that is most certain to take place. But Father, it's written to impact us today, to remind us today that we need to be seeking first the kingdom of God, that we need to be investing our treasures in heaven more than just trying to accumulate treasures on earth, which we cannot keep and will not last. So Lord, give us the wisdom and may Peter's words find good soil in our hearts that the seed might take root downward and bear fruit upward for the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to make Christ alone the treasure of our heart. For we ask it in His name. Amen.